Hello and welcome to Harris in Conversation, our Harris Federation teaching and learning podcast brought to you from London. Our series aims to bring important and relevant teaching and learning conversations to you, whether you're a teacher, a school leader, or simply an educational enthusiast. Perhaps you even just clicked on this by mistake. My name is Ollie Blagden, and today I'm joined by a really exciting guest, Dr. Varsha Panjwani. Varsha is the host and creator of the award-winning Women and Shakespeare podcast, and the author of Podcasts and Feminist Shakespeare Pedagogy, fresh off the press. Her teaching and research focus on the way in which Shakespeare is deployed in the service of diversity, and how that, in turn, invigorates Shakespeare. She's published on these topics in journals and numerous edited collections, and has been co-editor of a range of publications. She was one of the principal organisers of the multi-grant winning conference and film festival, Indian Shakespeare's On Screen, in collaboration with the BFI Southbank and Asia House UK, and the National Film Archives of India and Inox Movies. She has won grants from the Folger Shakespeare Library, the Society of Theatre Research and the Society of Renaissance Studies and prizes for digital innovation in Shakespeare teaching. She's been invited for public and research lectures by numerous institutions such as the Royal Shakespeare Company, Shakespeare's Globe, the Shakespeare Institute, the Jaipur Literary Festival at the British Library, the London School of Economics, the University of Cambridge and the University of Oxford. Now today, we're going to be speaking with Varsha, both about her podcast, Women and Shakespeare, and the release of her new book, Podcasts and Feminist Shakespeare Pedagogy, both of which offer a refreshing and vital look at some of the lenses through which we teach Shakespeare in schools. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Dr. Varsha Panjwani, welcome to Harris in Conversation. We're really lucky to have you with us today. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, and please do call me Varsha. Thank you, Varsha. So let's jump straight in. Would you mind telling our listeners a little about yourself? What is your research specialism and what drew you to it? So I specialize in Shakespeare and diversity. So I look at how Shakespeare can be used in the service of diversity and how diversity adds richness to the interpretations of Shakespeare. And I was thinking about what drew me to it. And it, it is very clearly my own marginalization within Shakespeare's studies, unfortunately. Um, because when, as an early career academic, I tried to get my work published, uh, it was actually on a very different topic to diversity. Um, but it was not easy to get my ideas heard because people would sometimes dismiss me when they saw me, <laughs> a brown woman. Um, you know, I'm supposed to be teaching medicine, not Shakespeare. <laughs> or um, when they saw a foreign looking name on these papers and they were almost predisposed to find the ideas lacking. And I felt really uncomfortable in spaces such as Shakespeare conferences, um, because, you know, in those days you would find very few people of color being invited keynotes or speakers at these conferences. Um, so I started feeling that I did not have any right to Shakespeare and that I will never be welcome in this field. However, it was also a time when I had a chance to see Shakespeare productions by these wonderful British Asian companies, such as Thara Arts um, and Physical, that was set up by Samir Bhamra. 
And actually that made me really reconnect with Shakespeare that I had loved. So when I started then systematically studying the contributions of people like me to Shakespeare, I realized how underpublicized these were and how little inroads they were making in our syllabi. And maybe this is why we don't feel uh, that we own Shakespeare because the contributions of people like us are not studied enough. So through my work as a teacher and a scholar, I really wanted to make these very diverse histories and diverse expertise on Shakespeare more visible. I mean, other people were doing this work as well, but I wanted to add my voice to their efforts. I wanted to diversify the research on Shakespeare to give more people entry points into the Shakespeare conversation. Um, however, let me stress that through my studies, what I have realized is that diversity does not necessarily need Shakespeare. Um, I know Britain likes to <laughs> not see itself as a diverse nation, uh, but we are a diverse nation. And we will find ways and means to express that, whether through Shakespeare or not. Um, but I think Shakespeare definitely needs diversity because if there are no relevant and myriad ways of looking at Shakespeare, then it will just become a museum piece, right? And rather die than being this living, thriving art that is relevant to us today. Really interesting. You talk about how your lived experience has informed your research and your practice. And by the way, thank you for being so open and honest about your experience. It's incredibly powerful. I just wondered whether this leads us on to your podcast, Women in Shakespeare. What did you set out to do with the podcast? Is that based on your lived experience too or something else? And importantly, where can our listeners find it? My podcast, Women and Shakespeare, was actually born as a teaching resource. And this was not only for my students, but actually for anyone who wanted to learn about the current state of scholarship in Shakespeare studies or in Shakespeare performance. So in each episode, I talk to a creative, whether it is playwrights, novelists, actresses, directors, or critics, innovative researchers and teachers. And in fact, I very much would like to invite Harris Academy teachers to get in touch to be on the podcast. I would love to hear what they are doing. Um, so I talk to all of these scholars about the way in which they are shaping the field of Shakespeare's. And all of these experts are women, because women have often found themselves at conferences with all male panels or manals many times. And it's not just me, it's many, many um, other uh, women. And I have statistical proof of this in my book, uh, which we will talk about, I'm sure. In theatre as well, actresses have often written about or told me horror stories about the, the fact that they still have to really fight for their interpretations because all the focus is on male characters, say Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Henry V, so on. In public discourse as well, I noticed how women were very rarely asked to be commentators on Shakespeare. And even when they were asked, the selection was really not diverse enough. And what I thought was that this silencing of women experts will have a really detrimental effect on our field as a whole, because we would not be listening to all of these brilliant minds and these brilliant ideas. 
So I wanted to create a platform where women scholars of Shakespeare could be heard. And also I wanted to prove that there are many, many voices in this field worth talking to. Um, so yeah, if listeners want to check it out, which I very much hope that they do, uh, the podcast is available on Apple and Spotify and most platforms for podcasts. However, if people want to listen to the podcast with a full transcript and show notes, then perhaps my website www.womenandshakespeare.com would be the best. Thinking about our audience listening to this podcast, many of whom will be secondary teachers and leaders. Why do you feel, Varsha, it's important for us to adopt an anti-prejudice pedagogy when exploring Shakespeare with young people? I think that the reason we need anti-prejudice pedagogy at all, whether with Shakespeare or not, um, is because all of us are prejudiced. And maybe that's a big claim to make, but I should probably say that all of us are biased, which can easily lead to prejudice and discrimination. The other day I was reading Pragya Agarwal's book. Um, it's brilliant. It's called Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. And she argues that we all have unconscious bias. Um, and since this bias is so deeply ingrained in us, right, it's unconscious that we're not even aware of it. I think in academia and education, we find it particularly difficult to digest that we are biased because of this myth of academic objectivity. We think we are neutral and objective and unbiased. However, no one is objective because of the environment that we grow up in, the texts that we study, the lives that we lead. Uh, these things influence what we see and also the things that we unsee all the time. So I think if you think you're objective, then maybe that is because you've taken the mainstream viewpoint so that it appears objective to you, but it might not be objective for other people. Um, so let us take an example, right? So if you're teaching Romeo and Juliet and you're using the film Baz Luhrmann's um, Romeo plus Juliet to teach it, it might seem like a very neutral and objective choice, but it is not because you've been biased towards a Western-centric view of the text. Mm. Um, so do you know what I think we need to do is to train ourselves to see our biases. And I think to rectify these, we need to include the widest range of voices and interpretations. Um, instead of some sort of, uh, you know, objectivity, I think we should aim for multiple subjectivities to be represented. And what I mean by this is that maybe alongside Romeo plus Juliet, we could include a Bollywood adaptation of the play, such as Ram Leela, to show how non-Westerners have interpreted Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I was reading and quite inspired by actually Harris Federation's English EDI consultant, Laura Mistry. And she has written that we should think about what is the role that each lived experience plays in the reading and teaching of a particular text. 
Um, so I think we should really think about how people with different lived experiences have interpreted these texts and then share these different uh, interpretations with the students. And we need this diversity because our student body is diverse and we need to empower all of our students, right? I think we need to do this with Shakespeare specifically because Shakespeare is so ubiquitous in our culture and you're considered very cultured if you know your Shakespeare. So I think to promote one dominant view of Shakespeare is really to deny the cultural currency of Shakespeare to marginalized groups. Um, if everyone feels that they can own Shakespeare and interpret Shakespeare in their own way, then they would also have access to Shakespeare's cultural currency. Um, I get very irritated because sometimes people say that Shakespeare wrote these very human characters. Well, if that is true, then all humanity in its rich diversity should be welcomed to interpret Shakespeare in their own way. So I don't know if that answers your question, but this is what I feel about uh, why we need um, to look beyond our biases. I think this discussion about lived experience and unconscious bias is fascinating and important. And I think certainly leads us on to my next question. Thinking about approaches to characters and in particular our female Shakespeare characters, let's, if you don't mind, just discuss Lady Macbeth for a moment, mm -hmm. who uh, perhaps will be the most familiar Shakespeare heroine to many of our teachers. What do you think are some of the issues we might be mindful of when exploring her as a character with our young people? Are there any common pitfalls or maybe dangerous generalizations you've encountered before? And if so, how might we tackle those, Varsha? Gosh, <laughs> when Big it question. comes to, I know, and I might have an equally um, you know, big answer for this, because when it comes to Lady Macbeth, there are so many dangerous generalizations. Um, she's usually understood as manipulative and evil. Even in the text itself, Malcolm, who is her opposition party, if you like, describes her as a fiend-like queen. And I checked the Oxford English Dictionary and even Oxford English Dictionary agrees that the epithet Lady Macbeth has become a sort of byword for a remorseless or a ruthless woman, especially one who assists or controls a weak man. Gosh. Yep. And politically ambitious women are, I'm sure you know, often described as Lady Macbeths. This label has dogged Hillary Clinton, for example. Um, and actually, this is one reason why I have, I have never warmed to the play, because generally people in popular discourse and even in critical writing blame Lady Macbeth. And obviously, I'm not going to exonerate Lady Macbeth here, um, but I do think that it is important to examine this role a little bit more with a little bit more nuance. And I think you were asking, how can we work against it? And I think one of the ways in which we can understand the role better is by including the voices and experiences of actresses who have played it in our teaching materials. So, for instance, I was um, very intrigued by Harriet Walter 
who has written about playing this role for a book series called Actors on Shakespeare. And she suggests that we look at Lady Macbeth's childlessness and what that means in the context of the society in which the Macbeths live. So this is an heir-obsessed society. If a woman can't have children, she's considered less than a woman. Uh, she has very limited options about what she will do with her life. Um, she would likely be very depressed because what is she going to do? So Harriet Walter decided that Lady Macbeth wants to be queen to restore meaning to her barren marriage. Or that Lady Macbeth thinks that by fixing things so her husband can be king, she can make herself indispensable for him. So if she cannot give him an heir, at least she can give him the crown. So in other words, um, she does partake in the horrible crime of uh, murder, but the society in which she lives drives her to desperate actions to feel fulfilled. And if we look at our society too, right, child-free women, whether by choice or necessity, are very made to feel very inadequate. Um, so one can understand the utter loneliness of Lady Macbeth, who has far fewer options in this military world of Macbeth. So I think one of the ways to um, remove such kind of generalizations or add nuance to them would be to include actresses' voices uh, when we are studying this play. And another thing that we can do is um, to help our students is deep textual analysis. And I know this is not a very fashionable thing to say, uh, but it is very helpful. And something that I get students to do is to analyze a letter that Macbeth writes to Lady Macbeth. Um, so until now, what has happened in the play is that Macbeth is returning from the battle. He's met these three weird sisters and they have told him that he's going to be king. But they've told him that the caveat is that his children won't be king and instead his fellow soldier Banquo's children will inherit the throne. So Macbeth is going to return home, but he still writes a letter to Lady Macbeth to share this news. And in Act 1, Scene 5, Lady Macbeth enters and reads this letter that Macbeth has sent to her. And I know, Ollie, you've had training as an actor. So <laughs> could you please play for the purposes of this, read out Lady Macbeth, um, reading out Macbeth's letter. Um, and that'll give our listeners a break from my voice too. Basha, I can't claim to do any justice to Lady Macbeth, but I will certainly try my best for you. <laughs> Thank you. They met me in the day of success. And I've learned by the perfectest report, they have more in them than mortal knowledge. When I burned in desire to question them further, they made themselves air, into which they vanished. Whilst I stood wrapped in the wonder of it, came missives from the king, who all hailed me Thane of Cordor, by which title before these weird sisters saluted me and referred me to the coming on of time with Hail, King that shall be. This have I thought good to deliver thee, my dearest partner of greatness, 
that thou mightest not lose the dues of rejoicing by being ignorant of what greatness is promised thee. Lay it to thy heart and farewell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Olive. So in this letter, the first question um, to ask is that obviously the audience have already seen all of this happen on this stage by this time. So we don't need this letter for the plot. So why does Shakespeare have Lady Macbeth read out this whole letter with Macbeth recounting what has happened so far? So I ask my students to compare the difference between the event as, it, as we saw it happening and Macbeth's recounting of this event in the letter. So often my students pick up on the fact that the letter sounds more hopeful and less doubtful. For example, Macbeth says about the weird sisters that I have learned by the perfectest report uh, they have more in them than mortal knowledge. So he's calling their report perfectest now, but when he had met the weird sisters, he was calling them imperfect speakers. Moreover, there is a big omission here, obviously, because he has not said anything about the threat that Banquo's sons shall be heirs and that he's going to have a very brief reign. So he has given Lady Macbeth very highly selective information and it's quite straightforwardly positive. So whatever her reaction is, is based on Macbeth's version of events. And I think this is really important to remember. So then I asked my students to note Lady Macbeth's reaction to the letter and what that reveals about how well she knows her husband. So when she reacts to the letter, she says that Macbeth wants to be king. She knows that. And she says that though he would not play false, he would be very happy to wrongly win. She then lays out a plan and she says that she would have to chastise Macbeth with the valor of her tongue so that he can take action. And here my students say that it seems she really knows her husband so well that she can almost predict what will happen. She predicts that he will want it. She predicts that he will get cold feet and she predicts that she will have to egg him on with her words. So she knows exactly what it's going to be. So my uh, point is that if Lady Macbeth knows her husband so well, can we not think that Macbeth knows his wife well too and thus sends the letter before he arrives because he knows that she will get excited and plan what should happen next. In the letter, he calls her my dearest partner because this marriage seems like a partnership. They both know each other too well. So in other words, is he manipulating her even before she begins to manipulate him? Maybe Macbeth knows that he cannot pull off his dark desires without her help, so he starts planting the seeds in Lady Macbeth's mind already. So by no means am I suggesting that this is the only possible interpretation, but at least this kind of textual analysis and questioning opens performance possibilities that are more nuanced and complex than stereotypical responses to Lady Macbeth. 
but I also think that this makes not only Lady Macbeth, but the entire play more exciting. So is Macbeth manipulating Lady Macbeth or is Lady Macbeth manipulating her husband? Are the weird sisters manipulating Macbeth or is Macbeth twisting their words to his purpose? So every time we add more nuance to women characters, we add more nuance to our reading of the play. How fascinating. I mean, firstly, I think, Varsha, to think <laughs> of Lady Macbeth as an isolated character and consider her given circumstances as explored by actors. And I think also to think of Macbeth as a manipulator is really interesting. Thank you so much. I'm sure our teachers will find that discussion enriching and, and so helpful when striving to teach the nuance of the text, as you say. Really yeah, and why should Macbeth, you know, go scot-free? Exactly that. <laughs> um, you're an incredibly busy person, Varsha, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. Aside from running your podcast, Women and Shakespeare, you've also just published your new book, Podcasts and Feminist Shakespeare Pedagogy, the title of which alone is exciting. I just wondered if you can tell us a little bit about the book. What does it aim to achieve? And again, importantly, where can we find it? I'm very excited about this. Um, it's a very, it's a short book. You, my readers will be happy to know. Uh, it's short like me, uh, but it was born <laughs> out of my practice as a Shakespeare podcaster and as a teacher. So as an educator, I practice feminist teaching whether it is focusing on women characters along with male characters in Shakespeare's plays as we were doing right now, or whether it is giving students research material that includes women's voices, or whether it is empowering my students to own Shakespeare regardless of their gender. And in the course of introducing new technologies in my pedagogy, I found that podcasts, due to some of their properties, or as they are called, affordances, are actually a really good match for feminist teaching in Shakespeare studies. So the book is about what I call feminist podagogy. So using podcasts for feminist teaching of Shakespeare. And it demonstrates how to teach Shakespeare in feminist ways or intersectional feminist ways uh, by providing case studies of Ophelia from Hamlet, Paulina from The Winter's Tale, Celia and Rosalind from As You Like It, Portia and Jessica from The Merchant of Venice. It contains a very good list of diverse women-led Shakespeare podcasts, and it gives assignment and lesson plans to practice feminist podagogy. Uh, the book is mainly for educators and due to my experience, it is geared towards university teaching. But my hope is that it would be helpful to secondary school teachers too. And um, you can find the book um, anywhere, um, Amazon and so on. But uh, it is by Cambridge University Press. So their website will have, um, you know, means to order a copy really exciting and I'm sure our listeners are already ordering their copies now. Also, podagogy is my new favourite word of all Thank time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, finally, Varsha, one question we just like to ask on the podcast is really aimed at acknowledging those who have influenced us in life. And I just wondered whether you could perhaps tell us about one teacher or tutor 
who inspired you when you were a student at school? Gosh, actually, sadly, my school years were absolutely horrible. Oh, I, oh no, I'm so sorry. I know, and I, I was, I really loved um, reading, and I used to love studying, but I had a very awful time at school. And this is why when I was at the Harris Academy conference to give a lecture earlier this year and met all your inspiring teachers, I was quite envious because I kept thinking, oh, I wish I had teachers like this uh, at school. Um, however, university was very different for me and I had some brilliant teachers as an undergraduate. So my Shakespeare lecturer, Dr. Amina Alial, she really deserves a special shout out because she would prepare these resource packs for us for studying Shakespeare, and these would contain so many different ways of looking at the text. I took each of her courses as an undergraduate, and I got a lot out of them. But what I remember most is that she really appreciated my individual take on Shakespeare, and she provided space for each student to bring their unique interpretations into the classroom. And then when I was doing my PhD, I was on one of those teaching scholarships. So I was teaching alongside researching for my doctorate. And I had the honor to co-teach with my supervisor, Dr. Richard Rowland. And what he really taught me was the importance of not being afraid to share one's joy for the work with the students and to be really excited about teaching. Um, he also taught us very amazing things about the text, but his passion is what I remember most because that meant that all of the students were infused by it and therefore we all worked really hard on the course. Um, obviously, my favorite feminist uh, writer, educator, Bell Hooks, uh, she talks about the role of eros in the classroom in the sense of the energy of passion for an exchange of ideas to invigorate discussion and excite critical imagination. And I have really seen the results of bringing this passionate energy into the classroom and how this makes students not only think about the text, but also how the critical thinking on the text can help them understand things in their lives. Um, so now my own teaching practice is absolutely influenced by these two, and it's about creating an inclusive space for learning to happen and about sharing my passion for the subject with the students. Um, so in other words, um, I want to continue what my teachers have taught me and provide those elements of teaching for my students that maybe a Google search on Shakespeare cannot provide. That's perhaps the most moving and meaningful answer to that question we've had yet. I'm I'm so sorry that your school experience wasn't so positive, but how amazing that you were inspired at university and, and that's clearly contributed to your exciting, innovative work now, passionate energy in the classroom. What an amazing mantra. Thank you so much. <laughs> so Women and Shakespeare is the name of Varsha's excellent podcast a series that asks us to think about and indeed rethink our approach to Shakespeare. You can find this, as Varsha has said, Varsha, would you like to remind us, where can we find the podcast? Yes, on any platform that you get your podcast, but um, also on the website www.womenandshakespeare.com.
It's a compelling listen. Barsha's new book also, Podcasts and Feminist Shakespeare Pedagogy, is now available. And Varsha, would you like to remind us one more time where we can find that? Sure. Again, any bookstores, including Amazon, but also from Cambridge University Press's website. And if any of our listeners want to reach out, how could they do that? Could they find you online at all, Varsha? Yes, I'm very active on Twitter, but also I'm very happy to give out my email address. It is earlymoderndoc at gmail.com. Excellent. Dr. Varsha Panjwani, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're really grateful. That was such a pleasure. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, wonderful to be talking about my work. This was Harrison Conversation. My name is Ollie Blagden. You can find the Harris English Consultants on Twitter at HFED English. If you haven't already, check out our other teaching and learning and research interviews at anchor.fm forward slash Harrison Conversation and our latest subject knowledge podcast for students at anchor.fm forward slash learning with Harris. You can find both podcasts on Spotify. Join us soon for our next interview. And until then, take care.